experimentation with drugs these days. Like that's not a thing anymore. We can't afford to maybe like one day on the weekend, go out and party with our friends or something like that. I mean, our lives are online. So it's absolutely terrifying um, what is happening these days. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Michelle Curiel of uh, Sobriety Playbook. Thank you for joining founder of Parents and Addicts in Need, Flint Anderson, and oh. myself, Jason, on the Don't Hide the Scars podcast. Hi, hi, Jason. Hi, Michelle. How's everybody <laughs> hi, doing? Thanks. thanks so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, we got a lot of different areas in, to, to go into, and you're doing amazing work with uh, Sobriety Playbook, but we were kind of shooting around some ideas and maybe where to start. And of course, you know, we're talking so much in Flint, more that your calendar is filling up. Uh, just speaking about fentanyl and the crisis that we're seeing Um and I know you shared some things with me about your substance abuse and, and overdoses. So, um, boy, sure. just how, how, how are you seeing it? This fentanyl crisis? It's just, uh, I mean, you're in a different part of the country and. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's gone beyond the point of, um, experimentation with drugs these days. Like that's not a thing anymore. We can't, afford to maybe like one day on the weekend go out and party with our friends or something like that. I mean, our lives are online. So it's absolutely terrifying um, what is happening these days. That's one of the reasons, you know, why I put a lot of energy into the sobriety playbook on my YouTube channel and starting to put more content out on Instagram because it's, it's a, everything in like the drug world, the game is completely changed. It's completely shifted. And so many people are dying and it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm on my phone for a reason here because um, there is, there, there's a guy and I don't know, he has MD after his name and I don't know if he's really an MD or not. Um, <laughs> but now we've got some people out there that are actually, what they're they're saying that that all these stats and, and statistics on the fentanyl crisis are not real that dea is blowing up the stats that uh you know our government's blowing up the stats and what i like to do is blow this guy up um <laughs> but um I'm, it, as soon as i find his name i'm going to bring it up here but um you know michelle we all know the fentanyl crisis is is happening everywhere this is this is beyond what anybody ever expected um mm -hmm. you know we've been talking about it for <clears throat> excuse me for a few years now and uh and and people weren't even you know weren't even listening three or four years ago when we were talking about it uh, it seems like we always wait until the last minute or we're neck deep in something before we go Oh, there's there there there's a problem here, and now nobody really knows how to address it. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's just uh, I am beyond the point of hesitation now um, in my life and about the things that I speak about on my my channel because um, there's just has to be so much awareness. All, all I know, you guys, is like. As a kid growing up, you know, I started doing using drugs and alcohol at the age of 14. There was no, no one taught me about the dangers of drugs. People just said it was just like, don't do drugs. That was it. There was <laughs> right. no, there was nobody that came to my school to share a story about how many times they overdosed, what it looked like when they got into addiction, um, going into uh, hospitals, institutions, psych wards, rehabs, being homeless shooting up on the side of the street, begging for money. Nobody talked about that. Nobody right. did. You know, it's just, uh, for me, it's like, you know, because of the virus that shall not be named and all that stuff, uh, it has caused so many people to turn to escape uh, mm -hmm. through drugs, alcohol, um, all kinds of other mind altering substances. And it's gotten so dangerous for people. Um, so many lives have been lost more in that, that this two year time span that we've been in than the times that I feel like when people are using drugs previously to the pandemic, you know, um, it's, it's so scary. The other night, last night I was talking to my mom and she was like, you know what? Um, she was like, Miha, like some 
images have been coming to my mind recently that I have not thought about in years. And um, I said, all right, mama, let's talk about it, you know? And she was envisioning me three years ago when I had uh, overdosed on what I thought was heroin, but it was fentanyl. Mm. And I had completely flatlined um, in my parents' bathroom and they came in and I was purple and I wasn't breathing and like all this stuff. And uh, it's just so scary to like, go back to that place of when my life used to be so out of control. It's like no one ever really brought to my attention how scary and real and addictive like drugs can be and how they can impact your life and change your family and everyone around you. So whenever I speak on my channel, it's like everything is out there because people are desperate and, need to realize that there's a way out. But the one thing I do want to ask you is because you brought up a very good point that, that, you know, you, you, nobody came and spoke to you about, but, mm -hmm. but you know, especially if we're talking about kids, if we're talking about if we're in high school or even mm -hmm. college, you know, cause mm -hmm. I've been doing this a long time and speaking to high schools and colleges, you know, uh, and it's, and it's just like Tony the other day when we had Tony Hoffman on sure. and, and, and he was at a, a high school in Bakersfield, California. And a kid came up to him and said, dude, you know what? You're, you're not going to help anybody here. Mm. You know, you're, you're, you're not going to help anybody because would we have really listened? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, I remember when I was in high school, you know, a hundred years ago, there, there was a, there was a movie called <laughs> red asphalt. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah. and it was, and it was about drunk driving and it was, you know, and it, it showed the blood and the guts and the gore and we're all sitting there going, we're, we're rooting for the, for, for the guys driving their cars. I mean, we could have cared less about that sort of stuff. Now I know when we go into schools and we, we talk, you know, these kids do listen, but after a couple of weeks, it's over their heads and, and, and down the road. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess the question is, how much would we really have listened and paid attention? I, I, do, I don't know. Um, I always right. wonder, are, am I making an impact with these kids? Sure. You know? Right. I know. I understand exactly what you mean. Um, because, you know, getting sober for me, it, it took an amount of willingness for me to listen. There's been so many times in my life when people tried to teach me certain things. And if I wasn't in a place of reception, if I wasn't in a place of willingness to change my life, it didn't make an impact. But at the same time, there has been instances prior to this stint of sobriety when people have planted seeds, sure. seeds. And I remember certain things that people said Great and I held on to those things. So to me, it's like, I don't know if anything that I share or say in a school with like teenagers or kids is going to change the trajectory of their path, but. I'm willing to try. Sure. And and I guarantee you that, that again, when, when, if you're speaking or myself or Tony or anybody else for that matter, we are making an impact on, on certain kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I've had kids come up to me years later, you know, and <laughs> say, and say, thank you. You know, I heard you back in, you know, 2011, 2012, and what you said made, made a difference, you know, or I've had kids come in and say, Hey man, I, you know, I didn't listen to you. You know, I kind of took the wrong path, but I, but I'm, but I'm here now. And, and actually some of the things you said do, does make sense now. So mm -hmm. I, I'm sure we're always touching somebody. We just don't know all the time who it is. Yeah. Right. New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect, in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery, to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. I think one of the hardest things maybe though too is um, maybe that hopelessness is, is, is not necessarily not being heard, but mm -hmm. what the, 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 
the feeling of there really isn't a solution, especially because mm-hmm. so many it's it's mental health issues and trauma. And like you said, coming out of this pandemic, it's, shit, it was hard for me. I, I had a brief le- relapse during the pandemic, um, you know, almost two years ago now. So these, you know, and it was related to my mental health. So, of course, we got these teenagers or even younger that, that just don't have the tools to process some stuff. And I think mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the helplessness is at. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think, Michelle? Yeah, like uh, there's a lot of uh, feeling of helplessness. I I have to say, like at the very beginning of my sobriety, I want to relate it to that. And the reason why I bring that up is because you were talking about children and the hopelessness and the a lack of uh, like emotional maturity or, or, or growth. Um, there's a thing that's called what, um, I forget exactly what it's called, arrested development. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And what I've, what I've been told is at the point when you start doing drugs. So for me, when I was 14, that's whenever my mind stopped developing. So for me, when I got sober at the age of 39, I was still in that 14 year old mindset. I still felt like a teenager. I did not know how to move through life. I did not know how to deal with my emotions, trauma, grief, or anything like that. And it was absolutely terrifying for me. Yeah, yeah, it's called that's the front your frontal lobe. When, when when whenever you start using that, the frontal lobe of our brain stops developing, um, mm-hmm. and and so it it basically comes down to a maturity issue. That's why when I when I talk about you know if you're dealing with a thirty year old addict, you're dealing with a fifteen year old. If, Fifty year old, you're dealing with a twenty five year old, yeah. That's but the good news is that those things do come back. It can just take a couple of years, maybe sometimes three or four years before mm-hmm. that maturity, re, re, you know, returns back to normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You know, I feel like my maturity has not completely returned. Me, still, <laughs> me too, still, Michelle. <laughs> what was that? I said, me too. You know, yeah. there, there's I'm sixty seven, and going, yeah, man, you're not sixty seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I I still feel like a teenager at times, but I feel a lot more mature than I've ever felt in my entire life, which I'm grateful for. And it's like, if, as long as I stay physically sober, um, then I'll be able to be clear-minded and see things for what they truly are and like differentiate like the true from the false. But if I go back into using any type of mind altering substance, it's just like, just like that. Just like that. It's like that veil comes up and I can't see the world for what it truly is. And that's terrifying. I have relapsed so many times. I've gotten sober a bunch of times, but this is the first time that I've been able to stay physically and emotionally sober. So I'm grateful. That's wonderful. Wow. Wow. That, uh, yeah. And I think that's the, the challenge. I, um, God is something I shared with you. I think when Mike Tyson was on Joe Rogan's podcast and they were talking about that, 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 uh, anxiety and the depression and all these things that, that, you know, can drive us back to that substance for what is, and it's not that we want to use it just, we want this other shit to stop. Right. And, and sadly we see that as a solution when it's no solution at all. Well, there's yep. a, there, there's, it's, it's unexplainable because, you know, no matter how much sobriety time you have under your belt, if you're going, if you're having anxiety, if you're going through depression, you automatically know that 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 pill is going to take all of that away in just a matter of minutes. But we in recovery, we have to think always three steps ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we know that that pill or that that joint or that line or whatever it is, is going to take our anxiety and depression away. The third step ahead is, ah, I know where I'm going to go the minute that I drop that pill, snort that line or smoke that joint. And, and one of the things I learned from somebody a long time ago was we can think faster in pictures than we can, than we can verbally or anything else. So, so I've, I've always tried to put myself, especially in early recovery, what does that picture look like if I take that pill? And I'm right. not talking about right when you're the picture of me swallowing the pill. I'm talking about the aftermath. Yeah. Where, and that picture can stay in my head. And one of the pictures I keep in my head, it would be, is the looks on my, on my son's and my wife's face. Mm -hmm. If I relapse. Right. Powerful picture. Right. Yeah. One of the the images that I keep in my mind is waking up 
about three years ago on the bathroom floor, overdosed after being revived from Narcan um, and looking at the paramedics' faces and my parents' faces. Mm-hmm. I, I, in that moment, uh, was so terrifying for me to see how much pain that they were going through. I told the paramedics, I said, get me out of here. Yeah. I want to kill myself because I did not know how to manage the impact and the suffering that I had put on my family. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, another one real quick is I, I remember in 1999, I decided to stop taking the numerous pills I was taking on a daily basis because I wanted to be so-called clean and sober for my, my oldest son's graduation. Well, the next thing you know, I wind up having a grand mal seizure in the, in the, in the, in my garage. And when I fell, you know, the broke the bone of my shoulder and it's sticking out through my, through the top of my, my shoulder. And, and, and I'm looking at his face because he's the one that found me, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's ugly stuff right there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's the shit I think we got to hold on to. Absolutely. To remember exactly where, how quickly it is to let the guilt and shame serve a purpose. Yeah. You know, yeah. I agree. Because I don't in this life now that I live, you live, Michelle, you live. I I don't wake up with guilt and shame. No, anymore. I don't either. You know, me yeah. either. No, none, none whatsoever. I just don't have daily actions that result in those <laughs> those self image uh, issues at all anymore. Um, exactly. So speaking of Narcan, you mentioned Narcan, which we we distribute here and do mm-hmm. trainings. Um, did your parents have it in the home, or was it the paramedics got there quick enough to revive you with Narcan? Yeah, the paramedics got there quick enough to wow. revive me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that wasn't the only time that Narcan saved my life. Mm. Um, I I had overdosed a couple of times when I was in sober living home, about to transition into another rehab and thought, you know what, let me just, just do this stuff one more time. Let me just shoot up one more time and then overdose right there. So it's just like every single rehab that I've been to, everyone that I visit, everyone that I take a meeting to, um, every rehab or uh, detox that I go to always has Narcan available and, um, and everyone knows where it's located. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, uh, uh, to steal this one from our good friend Tony Hoffman as well. Uh, nowadays, it's uh, you know condoms, contraception, and Narcan. Every yeah. every teenager, these this is your survival kit. This is the stuff that you mm-hmm. need to go and have with you as you head off to college, post secondary school, right? Because yeah. it's just out there. I have it in my you know I carry one in my car and one yeah. in my medicine cabinet at home. It's it's mm-hmm. it's like the new you said it EpiPen, right? You know we yeah. need to have this. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've got, I've got friends that, that, you know, their kids are still in college and I provide it to them so they can give it to their kids. Their kids can take it to their dorm rooms or their apartments and keep it on hand just in case. And these are, and these are good kids, you know, it, it's, uh, but they never, you know, like I told them, you never know if somebody's going to come over. Yeah. Right. And you don't know if somebody's getting high on, on, on some sort of opioid or they, they accidentally took a fake pill, whatever it is. So you better have it on hand and yeah. they do now. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you guys are bringing that up because honestly, like I don't carry it with me. Um, I've never thought about carrying it with me. Hmm. Yeah. Well, cause you, again, you never know. I mean, chances are you're not going to run into somebody, but, but, but what happens if you do, yeah. right. You know, but, but I also think with, with Narcan, look, we all know that it's a bandaid. It, it, it is, it is a, it is a tool used to, to revive somebody that second, that, that very second, because it wipes out the opioid out of our system. We've talked about this a hundred times, you know, that when somebody goes to the hospital, they've been given Narcan, they're already in withdrawal symptoms. Now they're going to start to go crazy. And, and, and if they survive the overdose, they get, they get discharged from the hospital and nobody is sending them anywhere. So they're, they're headed right back out to the street again, or, mm-hmm. or, or to call their dealer to get their next fix. Right. Um, it's, it's a bandaid. And even some parents thought, well, well, maybe my kid will have it. And so they'll be, if, if they decide to use, I'm going, no, this is not self-administered. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, if you're an opioid overdose, there's no way you can administer it yourself. You know, I, I mean, so there's a lot of misconceptions about Narcan and, and, and what it is and how it's used. 
but it is important today that we get this message out to everybody because yeah. it just has to be done. Yeah. Michelle, can you speak to after your overdose and the paramedics took you to the hospital? What do you recollect the aftermath for you? And, and was it like we've seen so many back to trying to get a hold of the dealer or how, how did it play out for you? Yeah. I was just talking to my mom about this last night. I said, you know what? Um, so they took me to a psych ward that day um because i said take me get me the hell out of here i want to kill myself right right um so they took me into a psych ward and i remember eventually they gave me permission to make a phone call to my parents and they said um you're never allowed back here you're not allowed back here i don't know where you're gonna go but you're gonna need to figure it out mm. um that was the first time that my parents ever set a boundary like that and that saved my life yeah. Um, it was at that point when I realized, okay, they're not kidding. Um, I need to figure out like where I'm going to go next because like prior to, to the time when I first, I overdosed in my parents' house, I was living in a trap house. Mm. Um, and I was so, I was doing heroin and I was doing meth. I was so methed up and like out of my mind, so paranoid that even the p other people that were in that, that house didn't want to have anything to do with me. Mm. Like they're like, you cannot come back here. Um, so like, I couldn't go back to my house. I couldn't go back to the trap house. I had sold the keys to my apartment to a drug dealer. I sold the keys to my uh, vehicle to a drug dealer as well. So I didn't have a place to go. So mm. I started, I didn't have any like real health insurance. So I had to call state funded facilities. Sure. That prior to that, you guys, um, I had gone to probably like 12 rehabs, really nice ones, like in California, super nice. I mean, places that had pools, places that would take us to the beach and all this stuff. But this time it was like, okay, I had nothing left. I didn't have my parents. I couldn't go back to the trap house. I didn't have an apartment. So it was like state funded facilities. Here I come. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes that's what it takes. You know, sometimes that's what it takes. And, and, and it's, and it's interesting, you know, when, when I'm talking to parents, um, you know, when we're first trying to get that message out, if, if the, if their loved one is causing so much chaos and grief at home, that there is, there does come a point when you're going to have to get them out of the house and the, mm -hmm. and these, and these, and these parents, they just, they just can't even conceptualize that, um, but but it's interesting when we're talking to you or somebody's talking to me or the 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 hundreds and thousands of people that we know out there that are in recovery, almost every single one of us will 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 say that's the best thing that ever happened to me. Was yeah. was was my parents kicking me out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's crazy because in that moment, and for the next couple of years, it didn't feel like it was the best thing. Right. At all. It was so incredibly terrifying for me. Right. But uh, it was the first time like I had to face the truth of like all the consequences. You bet. Mm -hmm. You. Bet. How did you re start to rebuild your life? So um, I went to the state funded facility. Uh, I did well for a little while. Um, the bottom line is I thought that the, the city where I lived the city where I grew up in, I thought that was my problem. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was the problem. So I moved to a different city. I went to rehab there. Uh, and I was like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with my family. I don't want to see them. They're triggers for me. I can't go to like the old places that I used to go to in that city because they trigger me. Like I wanted to blame everyone and everything. So I went completely different city, went to rehab, went to sober living, got into a 12 step program. And uh, the way that I started to rebuild my life was by learning and practicing the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, I had tried like psych wards, rehabs, detoxes, sober living homes, uh, church, God, you know, like all those things. Um, people tried to pray for me. I was on all types of like psych medications and antidepressants and anxiety meds and all these things and nothing worked for me. And so I was in a different city, tried the 12 steps. Or I didn't try the 12 steps. I was introduced to the 12 steps and I was told, you know what, like 
you need to get a sponsor, Michelle. Mm -hmm. And so that is where everything, that was the beginning of my sobriety right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mentorship is so incredibly important in life in general, let alone in this recovery process. Yeah. 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 My sponsor was pretty much like a drill sergeant. Um, <laughs> and it's exactly what I needed, you guys, because like growing up, I was an athlete and I always responded well to people yelling at me and telling me what to do and being really hard on me because I was a very manipulative type of person that could get away with anything or so I thought. Right. Uh, but the thing is, my sponsor could see through my bullshit like so right. clearly and he would call me on it constantly and he'd be like, Michelle, you're doing it again. You're trying to manipulate me. You don't even realize how manipulative you're being right now. <laughs> and I would get so upset and like block him and like all this stuff, talk about him behind his back and do all these things. It was, it's, it's funny, but, um, that one sponsor, that mentor changed the trajectory of my life because he taught me how to let go of the whole victim mentality and mindset and take personal responsibility for my life. Right. Oh God, that's hard. That is so hard. <laughs> it's extremely hard. It really uh, is. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, Flint and I, you know, very differing stories. I mean, you were born into things that were traumatic stuff, the multiple surgeries for me, being in the home of an addict, uh, you know, the stuff that I've talked about, the exposure to pornography, the molestation, it's the thing. So it, it's hard for us to kick out of that when something yeah. happens to us, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be the huge big T trauma. I mean, our, you know, our, our buddy, once again, to refer to Tony, it was because his dad was a workaholic and right. he felt that his dad didn't love him. So he was seeking mm -hmm. attention, right. you know, so it's just it's crazy how we can get to that victim mindset that we just don't let go but like mm -hmm. you said you start using it 14 so there you go you're stunting any growth out of that mindset period right exactly just stunting the growth from that period like onward not realizing that my thinking was the problem not realizing that i needed to change anything and i didn't i mean i, I just grew up around that type of thinking mm, um right and unfortunately, you know, there's like a lot of people in my family that are still stuck sure. in that, in that space in their life, uh, not realizing or, or having the awareness or mindfulness around their behavior or thoughts or actions. Um, I'm just great, grateful that someone was able to like shed light on my life and show me the things that I needed to change in order to evolve just as a human. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. Question for you. Very sure. unorthodox. Different sex sponsors. Very mm -hmm. unusual. Oh, yeah, how, for sure. How did you handle that? So, uh, man, um, the reason why I got a male sponsor was because I didn't trust women whatsoever. Mm. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, I did not have any... Anytime in the past, I had been through like emotionally like abusive relationships with like either coaches or teachers um, or friends and just quote unquote friends, you know, like in school and stuff like that. So I did not I, I knew that I would not be in a place where I would be willing to take suggestions mm -hmm. from a lady. Mm -hmm. And even though um, they say women stick with women, men stick with men, um, my life was on the line. Sure. And I said, you know what? Like, uh, let me see if this works, mm -hmm. you know? And one of the first conversations that we had was like, he was like, look, he was like, I've taken a vow of celibacy. Like, I do not do it. I am not attracted or physically, emotionally to my sponsees. Like, if we're going to do this work, it's going to be about the 12 steps and that's it. 
he set Good. a firm boundary from the very beginning and I was like, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. So how did that sit with you? Cause at first we don't like boundaries then we start to love and appreciate them. Right. Yeah. I mean, at first I was just like, okay, you know, I mean, but like I said, like I was super desperate. I had that, like they say, the gift of desperation. Yeah. And so, uh, it, it was at the point where it just didn't matter. Like, okay, it's a boundary is fine. Like, okay, what are we going to do next? Like I was thirsty mm-hmm. for sobriety. It was like the alcohol and the drugs, they no longer worked for me. I couldn't get high. I couldn't get drunk after 25 years of insanity. It's like, okay, well, if that's no longer my solution, then I need to find like another one. So I was just like, okay, let's go. Yeah. yeah, it's like it's like when I got back from from my treatment center and they uh, they had a, a, a temporary sponsor waiting for me at the airport and, oh, wow. and, 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 I, and I get off the plane <laughs> and, and this guy was like as big as a door frame, you know, and, oh, and, and, and and I get off and I meet him and I go, OK, man, I go, what's what's the first thing you want me to do? And he, and he goes, I want you to go to 190 meetings in 190 days, not 90 meetings, 190 yeah. meetings. And, uh-huh. and I look at him and I go, pardon me, Michelle. I go, are you fucking kidding me? And he looks at me and he goes, no, I'm not fucking kidding you. And I just went, and I looked up at this guy. I said, dude, I'm going to do anything you want me to do right now. Cause it, yeah. cause, cause again, I mean, I'd had sponsors in the past years. Nothing worked. I was, I was malip- manipulating them. Like there was no tomorrow. This cat, I was just afraid of in general. So it's like, dude, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. My first sponsor is sweet man, but yeah, a little, little too, too kind, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, and my, uh, my sponsor now, uh, yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of like having Flint. It's like me working with Flint. It's just, there's no ability to bullshit and it's the greatest <laughs> thing. He's like, he'll, he'll laugh at me. He goes, ah, that's funny. I've done that and worse. Okay. Let's get past that. Quit feeling sorry. For yeah. yourself, you exactly. know? Mm-hmm. Blow your nose and wipe it off and let's go. Right. right. You know, let's take a look at this. Let's break it down. Uh, exactly. You know? So, uh, it's developing those tools, developing those tools. Yeah. Um, the other thing is really intriguing. You were saying though, that you were an athlete so how at 14 do we fall into this because you know flint's seen it a lot with the work that he's done here in this area of high performing Mm -hmm. teenagers that that fall into substance abuse i was kind of a middle ground guy Mm -hmm. i worked pretty hard when i wanted to but otherwise it's just kind of uh-huh yeah so when i was 14 i'd say from the time that i was 14 until i was 18 years old like i did drugs uh, but it wasn't like hardcore, like getting right. into smoking crack every single day when I was 21 type doing drugs. So when I was 14, like I drank for the first time, um, I started smoking marijuana. I got into that because you know what? Most of my life, like I always wanted to like have attention, <laughs> uh, didn't really get it being a good girl, Catholic school girl, getting, <laughs> getting really good grades, you know, uh, being like the teacher's favorite and and the teacher saying, well, why don't you just be like Michelle or whatever? Mm, that was never yeah. good for me, you know? Right. So, uh, whenever I was about 14, I was just like, man, like, I really want guys attention. I want to have more friends. I want to be accepted. I've never been accepted. This is what I've always wanted. Maybe like if I can't get attention, like the positive way, maybe. And like, if I start doing drugs and alcohol, of course, this wasn't a conscious thought, like, Right. Negative attention. It's still attention to like a teenager. So I started dating this guy that was a drug dealer and started smoking marijuana. Um, When I got to high school, one of my, I guess, lifelong friends was a drug dealer and he uh, gave me free cocaine. And so I, I never had to pay for it. And people would always say like, well, what did you do for it? Nothing. I've never done anything sexual for, for drugs, period. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got into it. <laughs> yeah, That's crazy. But you bring up such a good point that even talking with grown men and women that are friends of mine around mm-hmm. my age, I'm 44. And it's like, you do realize attention isn't love, right? I mean, I had a buddy that I had to say, you do realize this. And he's like, no one's ever said it to me that way. I'm like, dude, you're 47 years old. How has no one ever said this to you? It's like, 
it, 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 you're, you're telling me this person is toxic. You're driving drunk again. You've had a DUI, uh, Uh lost your job because of it, but yet you just have to have this attention and you keep saying that you love this person. Uh-huh. And what the fuck. Jason, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have to say, you know, I've never heard that attention isn't love. However, I mean, I understand that, but mm-hmm. I've never heard that phrasing, though. But uh, you poor friend, man. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but I'm kind of a hypocrite. It took me till about two years ago to figure that out myself. So, uh, you know, right, right. Yeah. Still to this day, like I have to remind myself, like just because somebody is just basically what you said, just be aware for me, you guys, attention to me, like a lot of times when I think of attention, I think about the things that people say to me, Sure. right? I don't, I try not to listen so much to what people say to their words, but I try to look at their actions and if their actions aren't in alignment with their words, then I need to really look at why what are my intentions behind hanging out with this person what is the real reason why i hang out with this person is it because i like the attention is it because i feel lonely is it because i feel like when i'm by myself like i can't handle the silence because i don't know what to do with my thoughts so Mm-hmm. Boy, that, thank you for sharing that. That is such a key thing, just for a human in general. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. in, in recovery, um, how do you now, being, you know, in, in uh, this is your longest recovery period. Which you know, hey, we're behind you to keep this going for the you rest bet. of the life. So, mm-hmm. um, how do you start to evaluate relationships? It's a conversation Flint and I'll have because I still need some advice for someone that's been through it on on where that boundary is and maybe framing, like you said, who that person is or isn't going to be in my life. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, I started to evaluate my, my relationships whenever I first got sober and it, and it was super easy for me uh, because I didn't have any substantial relationships. Everyone Mm -hmm. that I used with was a drug addict like me or an alcoholic And I was just told you need to change the places that you go, the people you hang out with and the things that you do. So I was like, okay, well, if I want to stay sober, I need to get rid of that. For me, the trick came after I got sober. And whenever I started to make friends is to check my intentions. What is there? Why am I attracted to this person? What is it about them that I'm attracted to? Do I want something from them? Or... Am I just genuinely uh, connected to this person for a different reason? So there's just, um, there's just a lot of things that that come into play whenever I I meet somebody. It's like really just, I mean, honestly, it's just about checking my intentions and being Mm -hmm. honest with myself. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much it. And and I I found sometimes you just have to walk away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you just have to walk away. No explanation, no anything, you know, in your, you know, in your soul that there's something not right here. And Mm -hmm. if it's not right, usually your, your gut is correct. And, and, and you make the move. It's, 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 that's, it's that simple because there are people, I don't know about where you live or, uh, but, but I certainly know here, and I did experience this a little bit. There were people out there waiting for me to fail. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, behind their back, they're, they're going, well, you know what? I, I really hope he doesn't make it. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's just a reality, you know? Um, and, and, and I think the longer we're in our addiction, the, the more damage that we do cause, um, you know, when you start to say, yeah, I'm, I'm now clean and sober. Yeah. There's people out there. They're just going to still wish you ill will. They don't, they don't want you to get better, but mm-hmm. guess what? Let's prove them wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm grateful um, that I haven't come across anybody that has verbally said anything about me not staying sober or given me like any ill will. Good. Uh, that for me comes into play like on social media a lot, though. Yeah. <laughs> 
Don't you just love social media? It's just like into into the DMs, you know, or uh, on the comment in the comment section in my YouTube channel, or uh, sometimes on Instagram and stuff like that. But one of the things that I've realized being sober is like a lot of time. One of the things that was really helpful for me was the Four Agreements, the book, the Four Agreements, the not taking anything personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized that a lot of times, anytime someone uh, sends me a message like that or a comment that it's a mere projection of something that they're struggling with within themselves and it doesn't even have anything to do with me. So realizing that, letting it go and moving on. Yeah. Yeah. I used to try to, when, uh, when I got that, um, uh, first, when I started doing podcasting outreach work through the podcasting and, uh, I used to be like, Hey, what's going on with you, man? Why I'm a complete stranger. Why would you send this kind of message? And then when that started to backfire, it's just like, fuck it, just block them. What's the point of trying, you know? Uh-huh. Well, and, and I, and I, and this is just weird because this, this conversation right here, I was thinking about something this morning and, and there's this particular woman, all right. Who every <laughs> now and then, all right. She'll get on our, on our page and just crucify us. Okay. Yeah. And, and she doesn't do it very often. It's probably, you know, maybe twice a year. All right. And I don't know, honest to God, I'm thinking about this this morning because Jason knows me. There's a time to fight. There's a time not to, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and now that I've got a number of years of sobriety behind me, I was actually thinking, this is you talk about <laughs> stupid thinking. I'm thinking this morning, if she was, if, if she posts anything again, I'm just going to tell her, you know what, lady, I don't even know who you are. So shut up. Grow up, okay. And I think I'm actually going to repost that at some point, you know, because enough's enough, you know, from some of these people. Uh, yeah. And and you do, you get. I get to a point sometimes in my sobriety. Who do I have to prove this to anymore? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. You know, I don't. I mean, my family, as long as they know it, and the and the people I'm working with, I I, I just don't think I have to prove myself anymore. Yeah, I really don't feel like we have to prove ourselves anymore, like whatsoever. And Flint, like one of the things that you had mentioned just reminds me of a saying that says where attention goes, energy flows. Mm. And then it also reminded me of a saying in the big book that uh, we're burning up energy foolishly, trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. Like just to me, like there's been really... um, ugly responses that come through my DMs or comments sometimes. And it's like, you know what, I'm not going to even use my energy to respond to this person because it's just going to give them fuel to come back at me. Yeah. Yeah. So most of the time I'll just block them and you can block people on on YouTube too. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Had to do it a lot already with our channel. We're already getting (laughs) so much stupid stuff. Like, you know, somebody at the solution, uh, no, is our Instagram. He puts up like the solution for me was just uh, smoking pot, and I DM'd him like, "How's it going? What what job are you, you like su- successful?" No, I'm just living with my parents, and I just wanted to like screenshot that and post it because it's like, yeah, clearly that is not the solution, pal. You went from <laughs> uh, okay, you're not taking something that could kill you immediately to now still not doing shit with your life. Right. How's that a solution? It's not yeah. a solution. Right. Please don't comment like you're helpful to people. You're just trying to justify your way of not really living life. Anyways, that's me fired up. (laughs) I like you when you're fired up. I I, I do like that. Uh, I'll I'll try to be more animated. Uh, Sobriety playbook. Uh, Speaking of why did, why did you start it? Why, why start putting stuff out there? You put so much uh, helpful stuff. I was looking at one of your shorts. I think it was on YouTube on boundaries that I thought was really great. Oh, thank you so much for checking it out. You know, um, one of the reasons why, their initial reason why I started the sobriety playbook was because my sponsor told me, you know what, Michelle, if you cannot teach the 12 steps, you don't fully understand it. So I was like, okay, well. You got um, a hard ass for a sponsor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I was like, okay, well, if I can't teach it, he didn't tell me to start the channel. As a matter of fact, he was like, Michelle, I don't know if that's God's will for you, but you know, who knows? Um, and I said, but do I have your blessing to start? And he was like, sure, I'll be one of your first subscribers. Um, so I started to, to post content 
on the 12 steps, whether it was stuff from the big book or the daily reflections or the 12 and 12 and stuff. Not only that, like um, whenever I had first got sober, I had lost the ability to speak, but not because of uh, anything physical or an injury, but because the drugs and alcohol stopped working and I did not know how I was going to face the rest of my life without mm. being under the influence of drugs and stuff. Yeah, it's a big one. So when I went into the 12 step program and I would set it in the, in the back of the row or the back of the room in the back row, my voice would shake and my head would be down and I'd be so self-conscious and my sponsor would get pissed off at me. It's like, you need to get some confidence, Michelle, this is bullshit. <laughs> you know? And I was like, so I was just like shaking, you know? Um, but yeah, that was first what my intention was, was just to get outside of myself, to get more confidence, to understand the 12 steps, because I knew that was going to save my life. And then I started to get subscribers commenting on how helpful my content was. And they're like your vulnerability, um, the fact that you don't wear a mask and that you speak honestly about your experiences has helped me tremendously. And so I was like, okay. I'm going to continue doing this, you know, like it turned in a thing about self-development into service work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting how that works, isn't it? Isn't it? That, uh, <laughs> you know, to keep it, we got to give it away. And Absolutely. It just starts to manifest as it does. And if you're going to give it away, be loud about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Seriously, be loud about it. Yeah. I don't know. Like sometimes I, it's funny because like I have different versions of myself on my channel. Sometimes I have like the self, I have like a self development version. And then I have like the spiritual meditation version of Michelle, <laughs> you know, and then I, so I have different versions of me, but sure. um, I enjoy having the channel because I'm helping people. What I say is I'm helping people to develop game changing awareness so that they can transcend their spiritual amnesia and realize mm -hmm. the self. So a lot of times when we're in our active drug addiction or alcoholism, we forget who we truly are. And we start to identify as this addict, as this victim, as yeah. this person that can't get out of this dark hole, out of the pits of hell. And then when I got sober, I started to realize like I'm a limitless person that has all the capacity in the world to do anything that I want. Um, as long as I stay mindful and present and honest and open-minded and willing and not being so much service to myself, but being service to others, you know, with that said, like being in service uh, to others doesn't mean that I have to completely ignore my own personal development. It's like, right. I also have to do the self-care, um, being in sobriety. It's like, it's about balance. It's about finding like that little sweet spot right there. So, um, that's a different, different subject all in itself, but it's still like a practice for me to find that spot. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it's part of the daily, uh, just work that has to be done. It is, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, part of the coping skills, so to speak. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think the different, uh, uh, parts of your personality coming out is part of that vulnerability that's going to draw people in. It's important. Like, you know, <laughs> like Flint saying, I like to pissed off you, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, uh, cause every now and then we are, and we might have a message to deliver that way, or if right. it's, uh, you know, meditative or whatever. So I think it's important that you give people the spectrum of what your experience is and sharing that as, as rigorously honest as you can be. And, and I also think that is that no matter what, I hate to use the term angle that you're, that you're, that you're going at, but everything has to be done with passion. You mm -hmm. know, it, it does. Cause people see that passion, whether mm -hmm. you're, whether, whether you're soft and quiet about it or whether you're loud and, and as loud as can be about it, as long that, that, that passion is just critical. Even today, I, I had to speak before the grand jury here in Fresno County, you know, and as I'm walking out with the head guys going, God, Flint, we just, we just love your passion. Cause I lit them up in there today, you know, just <laughs> absolutely lit them up. And, and, and that has to be done. Yeah. And mm -hmm. people see that, but they also know when it's genuine or not. Mm -hmm. people, Absolutely. They're, right. they're, they're, people aren't idiots and they're, and they're going to know if it's, if it's, uh, you know, not sincere. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, people can definitely feel our energy. I'm glad you lit them up though today. <laughs> I did. I lit them up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just like my subscribers can definitely feel my energy. And if for some reason, usually I will post new content on Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. But if for some reason um, I know that I'm not going to be passionate or, you know, I'm going through something in my life where I know that it's going to come out rushed or insincere or it's going to seem like I'm just reading from a script and I'm not there and present with them in that moment, I will post something on the community tab and say, hey, guys, like tonight. There's not going to be any video. Um, I appreciate y'all's patience, but I'll be back soon. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we have to know when we need those breaks because no one else is going to tell us. Right. Just the way it goes. That's for sure. Just the way it goes. Well, Michelle, uh, boy, this is great. Uh, It's gone by fast. Yeah. Uh, um, (laughs) If people want to connect with you uh, for the Sobriety Playbook, uh, social media and uh, YouTube, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, definitely. You can find me on um, YouTube at the Sobriety Playbook, Instagram, and TikTok. I also have a couple of episodes on Spotify as well on an audio version. So yeah, check it out. Let me know if you guys have any questions or leave any comments in the comment section. As you long as it. they're good and constructive. Don't, <laughs> let's stop being a dick for the sake of being a dick. You know, <laughs> uh, Michelle, it's been a blast. Thank you. Absolute thank pleasure, you Mr. So Anderson. Much. Yeah, Michelle, Thanks thank you so much. much. I love your smile, by the way. Okay. You've got, <laughs> you've got an infectious smile and I can, I can tell you're doing a lot of good work and, and please keep it up. Let's uh, let's continue to stay in touch. We appreciate you being on here with us and uh, congratulations on your sobriety. Thank you so much, Flint. Thanks so much for having me on, you guys. Thanks, Jason. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at painnonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. This podcast contains the views and opinions of hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page.